Hello and welcome to another Bunker Daily. I'm Andrew Harrison. A while ago, I met a guy at a party who said he was a futurist and he was looking at the distant future of the car industry. The vehicle of the future, he told me, would look like a Tonka toy. Rough, ready, easily repaired with basic modular parts and very utilitarian. The reason, he said, was that nobody would want to own them. We'd all hire them by the day or the hour and when we'd hired them, we'd thrash the hell out of them because they wouldn't be cherished repositories of our identities or badges of our lifestyle. They'd just be tools. A party said from the minority of very high-end luxury cars, which would be more opulent than ever, and, of course, the self-driving cars, and who knew what they would look like. That's all stuck in my head ever since, even though I no longer actually own a car myself. Margaret Thatcher once said, if a man finds himself a passenger on a bus having attained the age of 26, he can count himself a failure in life. Well, I am that guy. But for all that, global car ownership did fall in the years 2018 to 2019, and the government is going to ban the sale of petrol and diesel cars by 2030. There are still voices arguing that EVs, electric vehicles, are a red herring and that we need to break the habit of owning cars at all if we're ever going to get to a low-carbon existence. So where is it all heading? What will we drive in the future? Will we drive at all? To discuss what our motorised future could look like, I'm delighted to be joined by the FT's motor industry correspondent, Peter Campbell. Good morning. And futurist, founder of Fast Future Publishing, Rohit Tala. Hello. Thanks so much for joining me. It's a fascinating topic. I mean, Rohit, I want to ask you first up, all my life, the car has been a symbol of freedom, like a teenage rite of passage. It's in all the early rock and roll songs from Rocket 88 all the way up to Little Red Corvette. Now a car almost seems like a burden that sits in your driveway, losing value. Are we seeing the end of a car as a kind of a, as, an, as an icon, as a thing to invest yourself in? I think it all depends on where you look. So in the West, certainly it's changing its role. My generation grew up with their parents having cars or our friends' parents having cars. It was an aspiration. Our kids' generations are are growing up not necessarily having that same experience. They have a different view from an environmental perspective, from a cost perspective, from a sheer convenience perspective. So the car is no longer something that you automatically write into your your financial plan as a Mm. kid to say, I need to save up for it. And I think that's going to shape our attitude towards cars. I don't think we'll rule them out completely, but there'll be much more of a utility, as you said at the beginning. But I think we'll have two types of utility. There'll be the, just get me from A to B and I don't care what shape the box is. But then there'll be the utility of we're going for a fun night out or I'm going to impress someone on date or I'm arriving for a job interview. So I want something that looks better, that has some style, something that represents my personal brand better. So I think we'll see that. And then maybe one of the most interesting bits we'll see is coming up around the communities, the influencer communities, where you might have a rock star, a rapper, a sports personality who alongside now having their NFTs might have particular cars that they're saying their fans should also buy or use. And they'll have these partnerships with car brands, existing ones and new ones, where we'll want to use the, I'm going to say because of my age, the Bruce Springsteen car, but <laughs> or whoever, the Adele car. And we'll want to use something like that, or I'll want to be in the Ronaldo CR7 when I arrive at the game, but I won't want to own one. So I think we'll see a lot of possibilities play out. So what is this doing to the industry from, from your work as you look forward to how it's changing? Well, the industry, I guess, has has grown up on this idea of scale. 
And that's been the main strategy for most car manufacturers, certainly in the West, is just get bigger and bigger. And that's been the model that Chinese manufacturers have followed. When we don't think we're big enough, we're not making enough money. And Peter can probably talk a lot more about this. But we tend to go off and we buy another car company. The world is changing now. And whether it's EVs, whether it's autonomous vehicles, we're talking about a totally different set of technologies. And it isn't taken for granted that the existing big guns are going to be the winners. I'd say if I was betting, I would certainly say that some of them will still be there in 10 to 20 years' time. But I think we could see some new partnerships between the really advanced technology companies who are creating everything you need for an autonomous car, including the communications to other vehicles so you can pay them to get out of your way because you're in a hurry, and the communication to everything around us. So we've got the technologies creating that, and then we could see them starting to partner with the, the consumer experience companies like Apple who really know how to get under our skin and create something that we fall in love with. So we could see some very interesting partnerships emerging in this space. Peter, I want to ask you, I mean, you cover the industry as an industry. Just how important is the car industry itself to the health of world economies? We tend to imagine that they are this kind of bellwether and, you know, good car statistics are trumpeted as like evidence of how well you're doing as an economy. Now, with this massive change in what's required from technology, but also because of climate change, how important is the car industry and how what happens if, a, if the car industry starts to contract? So the industry is, you're right, absolutely gigantic and a source uh, both as a, a bellwether of consumer spending for car sales, uh, also a source of huge industrial investment in companies and often a source of enormous national pride. You look at how mm. tied up the German manufacturers are with Germany's international image. You look at British motor cars as a sign of Britain's power, uh, that they're exported all over the world and their soft power. And you see uh, really them as a source of enormous national pride and protected by governments. Even when Chrysler went bankrupt during the recession, uh, the US helped them do a deal with Fiat that enabled them to go and carry on trading when as a normal business that didn't have such an emotional tug, you would have expected a company like that to go under. Mm. So whenever I hear the idea that because of all these changes that we're going to talk about, electric, autonomous, changing ownerships, new car companies coming in, whenever I hear the suggestion that the existing car companies of today are going to go under, I think that's actually very unlikely. What kind of new paradigms are you seeing coming? You mentioned the big broad categories, shared ownership, electric vehicles, and so on. What's happening in concrete terms that you're noticing that's significant? The most immediate of those changes that's coming in right now is electrification, mm. which is driven not because people are queuing around the block saying, I would like an electric car, but actually is driven in the first instances by government regulation around CO2, which is forcing all the car makers, let's just take in Europe, for an example, to launch all the electric models that we see on our streets at the moment. Most of those came out in the last two or three years because new CO2 rules came in in 2020. And as the CO2 rules tighten and as the government moves towards 2030 in the UK and bans the sale of new petrol or diesel cars by 2030, you're going to see a corresponding increase in the sale of electric vehicles. Now, the big question for the industry there and the big question for the market is at what point we reach this tipping point where consumers suddenly realise electric vehicles are better and decide wholeheartedly to abandon petrol cars and switch to electric, sort of in the way they've done with diesel. I mean, mm. we saw at the end of last year, electric sales for the first time overtook diesel which is something that would have been unthinkable even two years ago, actually, with the speed at how the market changes. 
having driven a lot of these things, once people get into electric vehicles, they're not going to go back. They're going to experience them and realize they're fast, they're silent, they're fun. They've got very good acceleration. Uh, you can hold a conversation with someone at normal speaking volume inside because there isn't all this engine noise. They're just terrific driving experiences. And once most people get in them and learn to live with them, and we'll come on to that, then I think most people won't go back. It's a big change. It's in its own way, it's kind of significant as the move away from, you know, on the design front, the way cars cease to look like boxes and started to look like blobjects, but it's a functional change, isn't it? How quickly are you seeing the adoption of electric vehicles becoming mainstream and what will that do to the industry? Well, I think, as Peter says, regulation is going to drive a lot of this. And a lot of the car manufacturers are going to anticipate that. If all the big markets start to move to banning petrol and diesel between 2030 and 2035, the car manufacturers aren't going to wait until that date to phase out the current models. So we're going to see that shift happen anyway. We're seeing all the other consumer trends. It's very rare now that you get in a rideshare or an Uber or whatever and it's not a hybrid already, or it's not an electric mm. vehicle already. So those shifts are already happening. And I think we'll see more and more of that. But I think the other thing that we're going to see is some very interesting kind of distortions in the marketplace. So right now, a friend was telling me that living in Houston, Texas right now, if the the list price of a car is $50,000, you're actually having to pay 60000 to get that car mm. because there's such a shortage. And that second-hand vehicles of the same model are selling for the new car price of $50,000. So when you see that, it's very hard to get the motor industry to say, oh, we need to change faster, we need to adapt. And consumers as well aren't fully believing yet that electric is where it's going to go. Mm. I think there will be a tipping point in the next couple of years the smarter people will sell their petrol cars sooner and shift to electric. I think there'll be a lot of people, though, who hang on and then will see that their vehicle has almost no resale value. And I think the social reaction to that could bring down governments. You could yeah. see a lot of really disgruntled voters who, for that reason alone, choose to vote the other way. We can talk more about it, but I think one of the things is also how quickly we can move to monetize our vehicles. So how quickly can I move to the point where my vehicle is covered in digital panels? If I'm driving through Chelsea, on the side of it, you've got adverts for the Ritz-Carlton and for very high in jewelry. And then when I'm driving through Kilburn, <laughs> nothing against Kilburn, but I'm it's probably... It's a great place, but it's local pubs, But I'm, I'm, I'm advertising the local pubs, as you yeah. say. I'm advertising the local restaurants. And we could start to see some very interesting economic models there where I still choose to buy a car, mm. but then I give it to someone who's going to be the, the taxi driver all day long, and I make revenue from two streams. One is the advertising... The other is the person using my car. So we, we're going to see a lot of interesting models emerge and second and third order effects of these shifts that we, we haven't thought about. Mm. And most people would laugh at you if you talk about these things. But two years ago, if I told people that we'd have 11 million people being paid a guaranteed basic income by government, I'd have been laughed out of the room as well. The global automotive industry is protected to grow to just under $9 trillion by 2030, and new vehicle sales are only going to account for about 38% of the value. So the market itself is growing, but it's not entirely made of new cars. It's things like services. 
digital citizen, possibly even subscription models for data, such as, I mean, in agriculture now, if you buy a tractor, you also buy a subscription to tractor software. And essentially, you need to maintain that subscription and your tractor doesn't work any longer. Are we likely to see that kind of thing? Absolutely. The proportion of the value of a vehicle is is changing already between the physical hardware, the engine, the tyres, the, the chassis and things, to the electronics, where we will reach a point not so long from now, even if we don't have autonomous vehicles, where the physical chassis is really only the carrier for the digital element, the data services, the connectivity. That'll happen anyway. And and so then the question is, well, who will get the value? Is the value going to go to the traditional car manufacturers or is it going to go to the technology creators who build the IP and create what's called a full stack of all the different digital services you want that you can literally plug into a vehicle anyway? And then when you add to that more and more companies that are coming up with really modular architectures that say you can buy a design from us, you can buy a factory model design from us, and then whoever you are, you could be a retailer But we can help you get into automotive and you could be in almost any country in the world and create for the the local level of demand you've got. So we're going to see some very different patterns there emerging and some very different business models around that. This is an enormous area that the car industry is spending a lot of time thinking about. And it's an opportunity for them because at the moment the car industry sells you a piece of metal that Mm. goes through the dealer and then they never talk to you again for another three or four years until you go back to the dealer to buy another car. Mm. But having a service, a subscription service, a data service, whatever it is, gives them an ongoing relationship with you. The risk of that model is that you don't have the relationship with them at all, but you have the relationship with the data provider or the software provider. And the car industry looks over at what's happened in the smartphone industry and says, do we really want to be the industry that makes the piece of black plastic that has the phone in it? Or do we want to be the software provider and actually have the customer relationship and help you live your digital life? And that's a big risk for the industry because they're very good at doing hardware. And those that have tried to go into software, uh, such as Volkswagen, have really struggled with it and found it much, much harder than they expect. But on the flip side, some of the technology companies that have come in and have thought about physically manufacturing vehicles have found that process much, much more complicated and much more difficult than they expected. We've all seen the growth of Tesla and we've all seen the incredible things Tesla went through to get to where they are today. They really struggled with production manufacturing and doing it at scale and at quality. Who of the existing car manufacturers do you think is closest to getting it right then on that mixture of software and hardware? So they're taking different approaches. Some of them, such as Volkswagen, Daimler, General Motors, are saying, we want to do the software. We want to control the customer relationship and we want to try and be everything to you, which is a risk, right? Because I, as a consumer, am used to living my digital life through my phone, my Android, my iPhone, whatever it is. Do I want to go to a different ecosystem when I get into the car? Probably not. But equally, some of the car makers are saying, no, no, we want to be black box manufacturers, but we want to be really good at it. Volvo said... We want to open up our systems, let Google build everything inside the car. We will just make the car itself, and that is how we will approach the market. So they're taking different approaches to this. And the interesting thing with this, as with so many of the changes that are going on in the auto industry at the moment, is no one knows which approach is right. So we're going to be able to turn around in 
25, 30 years and look back and say, ah, that approach was right or that approach was wrong. That approach turned out to be backing Betamax. I was about to say, what's the Betamax? Nobody wants to buy the Betamax car, yeah. Exactly. And this is the debate that's happening, whether it's in the approach to software in the industry, whether it's in different types of low emission investments you make, whether it's electric vehicles or hydrogen or clean fuels or something else, whether it's in approaches to autonomy, whether it's in approaches to almost any of these massive fundamental questions the industry is facing – there will be a right answer, but no one knows what it's going to be mm. today. So sometimes people say the industry is at a fork in the road. It's actually not. It's actually more akin to entering a labyrinth. It's a spaghetti junction. I want to ask you both the autonomous vehicle, which has cropped up in the conversation so far. We're told it's inevitably coming. How close are we to it? We had an expert in, in robots on the podcast today, Dr. Kate Darling, and she's kind of highly sceptical that the very, very complex problems simply of organising traffic flow, when you've got random X factors like a dog or a cat running into the road, how close are we, do you think, to an actual functioning autonomous vehicle, say in a city environment, right? It all depends on where you are in the world because there are so many factors at play there. You, you've touched on them. the ethical issue. Hmm. If the autonomous vehicle is about to be in an incident because there's someone still driving a manual vehicle, who do you hit? Do you hit the other car? Do you hit the young person walking across the road and do we do facial recognition and a quick assessment of their tax contributions and their, <laughs> and their likely <laughs> future value? Yes. <laughs> do we hit the 90-year-old but suddenly we realise that they're a religious leader with a following of 200 million mm. and we've allowed them to be killed? The ethical issues are not insignificant. So there's that. There's the software issues, as you say. Just how do we deal with all of the things that we deal with as humans without even thinking about it? And then we can't rule out the commercial factors here. No one's quite sure what game anyone is playing. As Peter says, you've got manufacturers trying to do it themselves. You've got manufacturers hedging their bets like GM, making a bunch of investments. You've got the likes of Ford making investments, creating patents but not really sure what they're going to do with this. And it may be that until they're really sure about what the business model is going to be, mm. they won't bring this stuff to market. So, for example, Ford have got a patent that will allow your autonomous vehicle to communicate with the autonomous vehicle in the next lane to say, please, will you pull back so I can pull out and overtake because my passenger's in a hurry and will make a micropayment to that other car possibly in a cryptocurrency. Now, that's fascinating. <laughs> is that a business model or is that just one of the elements in the entire package of services and solutions that would be part of yeah. your big autonomous vehicle technology stack? And that's where, again, you start to say, well, who could make money out of this? And it may be that no one can make any money out of that bit of the kit hmm. or out of the physical car, that where we'll make all of the money is out of the data, and aggregating the data. So taking the data about your behavior as a user and how far you travel and where you travel from, and adding that to all the data about your purchases and your other behaviors, and then being able to sell manufacturers and retailers a really in-depth profile so they can do even more targeted advertising. The question then becomes, who's better at doing that? Yeah. Is Ford well-positioned to do that? Are Fiat Chrysler, you name it. Uh, who's better positioned, them or the likes of a Google stroke Alphabet, a Facebook Meta? We're not clear right now, but it would feel to me like the, the winners in this marketplace may well be people who don't actually do the vehicles, who don't do the internal technology, 
but know how to extract value from the data. The really interesting question to ask about autonomous cars is why we're doing it at all. Now, initially, it was said to be about safety. 1.2 million people die a year Mm. in fatal road accidents around the world. And the idea is autonomous cars, if they eliminate human error, should therefore theoretically be safer. But the big question is at what point are these things allowed out in the wild? There are already some in operation. There's some in Phoenix uh, that are running around that are actually running a commercial service without anyone behind the wheel operated Mm. by Waymo. There are other companies testing these things. But it's going to be a brave regulator somewhere who says, we allow these cars now at this stage to go onto the road without a backup driver, without any other backup systems other than the car's own capabilities. Because if you think about it as a problem of solving fatalities – Do we as a society allow robots effectively to kill 200,000 people a year globally because it's much safer than allowing human (laughs) drivers to kill a million people? Mm. Very unlikely, right? Very unlikely to get to that stage, at which point you have to ask, well, how safe do they have to be before they're allowed? And honestly, no one knows the answer to that. What is actually far more likely to happen on the safety front is you'll get other technologies which are much less sexy but actually much more important will come along and eliminate the fatalities from the bottom up. So you're going to see forward collision braking, which comes into all new cars, I think, from next year in the EU, where they automatically stop if something's in front of them. You're going to see driver monitoring cameras, which Volvo is talking about, which actually watch your eyes as you're driving. And if you go on your phone, or if you're drunk and it can monitor your eye movements, then the vehicle will stop or it will pull over or it will not let you start it. Because Volvo said, we think that is the biggest cause of accidents are people on their phones, people drunk or people speeding. And those technologies are actually more likely to eliminate the fatalities in the years to come long, long, long before we get to a world where everyone's riding around in autonomous pods. How very Scandinavian of them. Climate change has been the background hum and context of everything we've been talking about here. The fossil fuel industry has a terrible reputation for greenwashing, for making moves in public and doing the opposite behind the scenes. How seriously is the automotive industry itself taking the need to transition from petrol and diesel? Are they sincere about it? I think they're sincere about it because they have to be, right? So they Mm. can see the political mood music, hear the political mood music, I suppose. They can see the direction of travel. They see that the world is going to zero emissions. Mm. And it would be silly not to to fight against that too hard when you know it's going to happen. Now, some of them are being very enthusiastic about this. Uh, Volvo, Mercedes-Benz, General Motors have all been incredibly enthusiastic pushes of going electric early. Others have taken a far more measured and actually quite nuanced stance, such as Toyota, such as a company called Stellantis, which basically owns Peugeot and Fiat, and such as BMW. And what those companies say is, yes, we want to go zero emission. But if we are doing this seriously to save the planet, then we actually have to look at all of the emissions, including how we lower emissions from lithium mines across the world Mm. that feed into our electric batteries, including how we increase recycling, and also including how we bring along a huge amount of the, the developing world with us who will not be able to afford an electric car in the next 15 years or will not have a power grid in their country that can support charging infrastructure. As a world are really serious about moving to electric or zero carbon vehicles, we have to find a way of doing it that doesn't 
leads to a great amount of what you might call left behindism. Doesn't cut off a bunch of people who otherwise would be able to afford to get into private vehicles. Because as much as there is private vehicle bashing in a lot of big cities and a lot of mega cities, if you actually look globally. Private vehicle access and personal mobility is one of the single greatest ways of lifting people out of poverty. And so, actually, if you are going to say to people in Latin America, people in parts of Africa, people in parts of rural China, "Sorry, you can't have cars. We know、mm. you thought you were going to get them, but you can't afford them." You're going to do economic damage. You're going to do huge social damage, and so the world really needs to think carefully about how the transition happens. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen, and that doesn't mean the companies that are advocating that aren't environmentally serious about this. But they just say rushing headlong into electric vehicles is not guaranteed to be the right way to go. Yeah, Tesla makes more money out of the environmental credits that it gets paid for than it does、right. out of car manufacturing. It's three big profit. Uh, streams are the environmental credits, the capital gains on its crypto holding, and, <laughs> and the third is car sales.、Yeah. And so, even though it's got a very sustainable footprint model for where its car is going to go, it's making its money out of other things. And I think the whole industry is is, is trying to work out how it gets the cost back、mm. of investing all this stuff. As Peter said, there's also a very big economic and political issue that. One of the big things the European Union sold to the new member states was, "We will help you create a new industrialisation roadmap, and we'll start with automotive, and we'll,、mm. we'll experiment." So Slovakia was encouraged to build an automotive industry, and it did very well for a while. Volkswagen, Jaguar, Land Rover have a factory there, but suddenly, when it's hit with all these environmental requirements, it's saying, "We can't have a competitive car industry here." And if we can't have a competitive auto industry, then we're not going to be able to persuade other industries to come here because they're going to have the same challenges. It's a smaller country, smaller footprint. So there's a real concern there that if you if you don't get this right with automotive, you also slow the development of other、mm. industries. And we're not investing enough at the moment in creating the new green industries to make up the difference. And we're certainly not investing in the skills development. So. Auto plays a big role, not just for its own sake, but because of the signalling and, and because of its cultural importance in a society and it, its sort of flag-waving importance. And fundamentally, you need far fewer people to build and develop an electric car than you do a combustion engine, and you have a much smaller supply supply chain because you don't have all the three thousand bits that go into、mm. a combustion engine. And this is a massive challenge for. The car companies, and particularly going back to our political point earlier, for their home nations, right?、Yeah. A vast chunk of Germany's economy is bits that go into cars, and so all the German car makers, while they ideally might like to build their electric cars in lower cost countries or somewhere else, are under enormous pressure from the government and from unions to make those cars in Germany, despite the high cost base. In order to try and protect at least some of the jobs that they currently employ, so there's going to be a huge, as you said, skill shift within the industry, an enormous change in the number of people that are needed. And the question is, are you really going to try and retrain a bunch of diesel engineers、mm. to be software engineers for the industry? It's a very hard challenge. Just another point on that: the more digital our cars become, the more self-diagnosing, the more self-healing they become.、Mm -hmm. That if there's a problem and the intelligence in the car can't fix it, well, it just downloads the fix. If it is a problem with the mechanical elements, then your robot in the back of the car 
wheels out and does the fix and is guided in what to do in terms of the fix. And if it's a part that it doesn't have, well, we're talking about a drone flying in and bringing you the part. So we're taking the human out of that loop completely. The auto repair industry, which is massive, gets hit by this in a way that I don't think we've again thought through those second and third order effects. About the only thing that might survive in any significant sense are the panel beaters and the people who do crash repairs. But if we're going for autonomous vehicles, then theoretically we're going to have a lot less. Yeah. And so there's some very kind of interesting things there. The insurance industry has no clue how to deal with this because if you're going to have a lot less cars, then how do I write a premium? And you're already seeing in the crypto world new models come up where you and I join an insurance pool, we put our money up, we collectively with 50 other people in the pool vote every time someone has a claim as to whether they should get paid and what they should get paid. (laughs) And at the end of the year, there's a good chance that if we haven't made a payout and we've put our money up in crypto, we've made a profit on our premium because the entire thing is is run as a digital enterprise with no employees. It's what's called a decentralized autonomous organization. So the insurance industry is being hit from every angle in terms of how does it create a model? And you start to have self-insuring cars, cars that insure per drive with the other cars on the road. They talk to each other and say, okay, per minute I'm on the road, this is how much I'm I'm contributing this much, 20 pence for this ride, and that's contributing to the insurance pool. It's mind-bending what starts to happen when we start to think about what AI will enable us to do, pretty much with current AI technology. We're not even talking about artificial general intelligence yeah. that's as smart as us. Just with the kind of tech that you and I have in our phone, we can do all this today. So we're going to have a whole new meaning for car crash. The software's crashed. We're all going to be underwriters for our own vehicles. I have to ask you finally, because this has been one of the most fascinating dailies we've done. Got to ask you about where are the flying cars? Are we going to be getting the flying cars? Well, the flying cars are hopefully not falling down on us because they've broken down, (laughs) which is one of the big risks. Some of the car companies are thinking genuinely seriously about this. Hyundai have made an investment. Geely have made an investment. The thing that I struggle with, and when we talk about flying cars, we need to be clear what we mean, right? Mm. They are not cars that drive and then fly broadly. What they mean is electric helicopters, things that look a bit like drones. You're going to see these coming for deliveries anyway. That is happening already and is being trialled and is probably not that far away. But what they're seriously thinking about is using these to move passengers and people. And there are some enormous regulatory hurdles to clear here. And there are also enormous safety hurdles to clear with the obvious Elon Musk, who runs Tesla, has made this point and said, look, if your car breaks down, it pulls over to the side of the road. What do you do if your electric helicopter breaks down? You've got a problem. And so uh, there are those barriers to clear. And then there's the question of the business model. Now, I've read Uber's Elevate pitch, which is when Uber was thinking quite seriously about flying taxis in cities. And it's very unclear how you get to a vehicle that is large enough that can take enough people. So essentially, these things become viable and not just being electric and slightly techie versions of billionaires' helicopters. (laughs) But it is something that the industry is genuinely thinking might in the future as the way that we get around cities is changing, as car ownership in cities declines, as mega cities become even more mega, car makers are thinking about other ways of playing in that space. They're looking at other forms of transport. They're looking at e-scooters, e-bikes. They're looking at shared transport. And they're thinking potentially long term 
about flying cars. So just as the cars get quiet because they're electric, the flying cars become noisy. So that's great, isn't it? Well, we are going to reassemble in 10 years' time, possibly by Uber helicopter here, and discuss how our predictions or guesses have gone. It's been absolutely fascinating. Peter Campbell and Rohit Tala, thank you very much for coming in. Pleasure. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to The Bunker, uh, listener. If you enjoyed this episode, remember you can back us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more about early episodes, merchandise, and more. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Bunker Daily. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>